Book Two, Chapter Eight, Part One of Lord of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Therese. Lord of the World by Robert Eubenson. Book Two, Chapter Eight, Part One. Long before dawn on the first morning of the new year, the approaches to Abbey Street were already blocked. Victoria Street, Great George Street, Whitehall, even Millbank Street itself, were full and motionless. Broad Sanctuary, divided by a low-walled motor-track, was itself cut into great blocks and wedges of people, by the ways which the police kept open for the passage of important personages, and Palace Yard was kept rigidly clear except for one island, occupied by a stand which was itself full from top to bottom and end to end. All roofs and parapets, which commanded a view of the abbey, were also one mass of heads. Overhead, like solemn moons, burned the white lights of the electric globes. It was not known at exactly what hour the tumult had steadied itself to definite purpose, except to a few weary controllers of the temporary turnstiles, which had been erected the evening before. It had been announced a week previously that, in consideration of the enormous demand for seats, all persons who presented their worship ticket at an authorized office and followed the directions issued by the police would be accounted as having fulfilled the duties of citizenship in that respect, and it was generally made known that it was the government's intention to toll the great bell of the abbey at the beginning of the ceremony and at the incensing of the image, during which period silence must be as far as possible preserved by all those within hearing. London had gone completely mad on the announcement of the Catholic plot on the afternoon before. The secret had leaked out about fourteen o'clock, an hour after the betrayal of the scheme to Mr. Snowford, and practically all commercial activities had ceased on the instant. By fifteen and a half, all stores were closed. The stock exchange, the city offices, the West End establishments, all had as by irresistible impulse suspended business, and from within two hours after noon until nearly midnight, when the police had been adequately reinforced and enabled to deal with the situation. Whole mobs and armies of men, screaming squadrons of women, troops of frantic youths, had paraded the streets, howling, denouncing, and murdering. It was not known how many deaths had taken place, but there was scarcely a street without the signs of outrage. Westminster Cathedral had been sacked, every altar overthrown, indescribable indignities performed there. An unknown priest had scarcely been able to consume the blessed sacrament before he was seized and throttled. The archbishop with eleven priests and two bishops had been hanged at the north end of the church. Thirty-five convents had been destroyed. St. George's Cathedral burned to the ground, and it was reported even by the evening papers that it was believed that, for the first time since the introduction of Christianity into England, there was not one tabernacle left within twenty miles of the abbey. London, explained the new people in huge headlines, was cleansed at last of dingy and fantastic nonsense. It was known at about fifteen and a half o'clock that at least seventy velours had left for Rome, and half an hour later that Berlin had reinforced them by sixty more. At midnight, fortunately at a time when the police had succeeded in shepherding the crowds into some kind of order, the news was flashed on to cloud and placard alike that the grim work was done, and that Rome had ceased to exist. The early morning papers added a few details, pointing out, of course, the coincidence of the fall with the close of the year, relating how, by an astonishing chance, 
practically all the heads of the hierarchy throughout the world had been assembled in the vatican which had been the first object of attack and how these in desperation it was supposed had refused to leave the city when the news came by wireless telegraphy that the punitive force was on its way there was not a building left in rome the entire place leonine city trastevere suburbs everything was gone for the volors poised at an immense height had parcelled out the city beneath them with extreme care before beginning to drop the explosives and five minutes after the first roar from beneath and the first burst of smoke and flying fragments the thing was finished the volors had then dispersed in every direction pursuing the motor and rail tracks along which the population had attempted to escape so soon as the news was known and it was supposed that not less than thirty thousand belated fugitives had been annihilated by this foresight it was true remarked the studio that many treasures of incalculable value had been destroyed but this was a cheap price to pay for the final and complete extermination of the catholic pest there comes a point it remarked when destruction is the only cure for a vermin-infested house and it proceeded to observe that now that the pope with the entire college of cardinals all the ex-royalties of europe all the most frantic religionists from the inhabited world who had taken up their abode in the holy city were gone at a stroke a recrudescence of the superstition was scarcely to be feared elsewhere yet care must even now be taken against any relenting catholics if any were left bold enough to attempt it must no longer be allowed to take any kind of part in the life of any civilized country so far as messages had come in from other countries there was but one course of approval at what had been done a few papers regretted the incident or rather the spirit which had lain behind it it was not seemly they said that humanitarians should have recourse to violence yet not one pretended that anything could be felt but thanksgiving for the general result ireland too must be brought into line they must not dally any longer it was now brightening slowly towards dawn and beyond the river through the faint wintry haze a crimson streak or two began to burn but all was surprisingly quiet for this crowd tired out with an all-night watch chilled by the bitter cold and intent on what lay before them had no energy left for useless effort only from packed square and street and lane went up a deep steady murmur like the sound of the sea a mile away broken now and again by the hoot and clang of a motor and the rush of its passage as it tore eastwards round the circle through broad sanctuary and vanished citywards and the light broadened and the electric globe sickened and paled and the haze began to clear a little showing not the fresh blue that had been hoped for from the cold of the night but a high colourless vault of cloud washed with grey and faint rose colour as the sun came up a ruddy copper disc beyond the river at nine o'clock the excitement rose a degree higher the police between whitehall and the abbey looking from their high platforms strung along the route whence they kept watch and controlled the wire palisadings showed a certain activity and a minute later a police car whirled through the square between the palings and vanished round the abbey towers the crowd murmured and shuffled and began to expect and a cheer was raised when a moment later four more cars appeared bearing the government insignia and disappeared in the same direction these were the officials they said going to dean's yard where the procession would assemble at about a quarter to ten the crowd at the west end of victoria street began to raise its voice in a song and by the time that was over and the bells had burst out from the abbey towers a rumour had somehow made its entrance that felsenburgh was to be present at the ceremony there was no assignable reason for this 
neither then nor afterwards. In fact, the evening star declared that it was one more instance of the astonishing instinct of human beings in mass, for it was not until an hour later that even the government were made aware of the facts. Yet the truth remained that at half-past ten, one continuous roar went up, drowning even the brazen clamor of the bells, reaching round to Whitehall and the crowded pavements of Westminster Ridge, demanding Julian Felsenberg. Yet there had been absolutely no news of the President of Europe for the last fortnight, beyond an entirely unsupported report that he was somewhere in the East. And all the while the motors poured from all directions toward the Abbey, and disappeared under the arch into Dean's Yard, burying those fortunate people whose tickets actually admitted them to the church itself. Cheers ran and rippled along the lines as the great men were recognized. Lord Pemberton, Oliver Brand and his wife, Mr. Caldecott, Maxwell Snowford, with the European delegates, even melancholy faced Mr. Francis himself, the government ceremoniarius, received a greeting. But by a quarter to eleven, when the pealing bells paused, the stream had stopped, the barriers issued out to stop the roads, the wire palisadings vanished, and the crowd for an instant ceased its roaring, sighed with relief at the relaxed pressure, and surged out into the roadways. Then once more the roaring began for Julian Felsenberg. The sun was now high, still a copper disc above the Victoria Tower, but paler than an hour ago. The whiteness of the abbey, the heavy greys of Parliament House, the ten thousand tents of house roofs, heads, streamers, placards began to disclose themselves. A single bell tolled five minutes to the hour, and the moments slipped by, until once more the bell stopped, and to the ears of those within hearing of the great west doors came the first blare of the huge organ, reinforced by trumpets. And then, as sudden and profound as the hush of death, there fell an enormous silence. End of Book Two, Chapter Eight, Part One. Recording by Maria Therese.